I want to thank our music team this morning. It's been a lot of work each week for them to gather and prepare, and it's harder than you might imagine, I'm sure, to stand up and sing to a mostly dark, mostly empty room. But I know in their hearts uh, they come with the desire to love and serve you, even as they desire to worship our Lord. So thankful for them and for the words that have led us and prepared us uh, for the text this morning. We will be looking today at John chapter 4. So we will be returning to our study of the book of John. And I would invite you, those of you that have a copy of God's Word, to turn there to John chapter 4. And as you are able, consider standing as we often do it when we are together in honor of the reading of God's Word. This morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 19. And so would you read with me John chapter 4, 1 to 19. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. He said to her, Go. Call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to this passage this morning, a familiar one, a story told often, because in it we see the heart of your Son for those least expecting the mercy and the kindness of God. And we pray that we would come this morning and receive the truth of your word and be reminded again of the grace in which we now stand that we would be encouraged both to celebrate your incredible kindness to us and also to imitate you in the way in which we love those in this world that you have put around us and to whom you have sent us as your representatives. So cause us to have minds to understand, ears to hear, and a heart really willing and ready to obey. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And for those here and for any of you standing at home, Find a cushy cushion and have a seat. We are coming today to the story of the woman at the well, as it's often called. And it is a, as a familiar story. and It's one that I think has come back into a lot more popularity recently because it tends to strike chords in our culture that uh, are hot topics. It often comes up in conversations about social justice and compassion and equality and uh, 
in our discussions about racism and culture. And it should, because it, it relates to all of these topics. And I want this morning, as we come to this passage, for us to see all that's going on here and what Jesus is doing here, and to appreciate it in a way that helps us to perhaps strip away some of the cultural vocabulary that we like to use, and instead perhaps adopt a more biblical vocabulary for how to think about the gospel, how to think about the grace of God, and how that applies to people in this world who are very much not like us. And so we look this morning at a fairly simple outline, if you will, but a pretty profound lesson. And so if you're taking notes this morning and you have our bulletin, uh, go ahead and you can fill in your first point, and it's this, a thirsty Savior arise. We're going to see uh, not this week, but in the coming week, that this word Savior is used to describe Jesus and his arrival at the town here and in the region of Samaria. Jesus is coming as a Savior, though they do not yet know that. And he is arriving at a place that was not looking for a Savior, especially one from the area of Jerusalem. But in verses 1 through, 60, 6, excuse me, 1 through 6, we see the arrival of the Savior. It says, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. We're changing scenes again here. If you recall from chapter 3, we had the conversation with Nicodemus. We had the final testimony of John the Baptist. That's sort of been our, our backdrop and our setting. We're changing scenes again. John is helping us follow along with Christ to a new locale. And the timing of that transition is in verse 1 there. The ministry of Jesus is beginning to make waves among the religious leaders. John and Jesus have both been doing baptism ministries in parallel. And as we saw, Jesus is increasing and John is decreasing to the point where the great throngs of people that were coming to John are now the great throngs of people coming to Jesus. And the religious leaders who I, whose eyes were on John, what's going on with this guy baptizing and preaching in the wilderness? Their eyes and their attention are now turning to Jesus, whose ministry is overtaking him. In verse 2, you have a clarification about the baptism ministry of Jesus. Jesus is doing a ministry of baptism, but he's not actually the one in the water dunking people, as it were. He's leaving that ministry to his disciples. He's proclaiming truth. He is teaching the people. And then his disciples are the ones who are actually doing the baptisms. That almost seems to become a little bit of a paradigm elsewhere in the New Testament. You see even Paul writing to the churches saying, hey, when I came and taught you and, and brought you to Christ through the message of the gospel, I didn't even baptize you, but other people did. So there's a little clarification from John on how Jesus did his ministry. He brought his followers into it and let them participate directly. And it's, it's a cool thing to see even today that that's how Jesus operates. It is still his message, his gospel that does the work, but we have the joy of participating in it. And then in verse 3, you have this change in scenery. You have the move. Because Jesus knew that they had realized, the leaders there, that his ministry had exceeded John, he chose to leave Judea and went away again into Galilee, likely to avoid a major confrontation with those Jewish leaders. When they went to John, what are you up to? John was saying, I'm pointing to somebody else, that guy. And so you would then go to talk to that guy and say, what are you up to? And Jesus is going to have that conversation, but Jesus is also pacing his ministry because his hour will not come until his hour is come and it will be on his terms and not on the terms of the religious leaders of Israel. In verses 4 through 6 then, we have a stop along the way from Judea to Galilee. In verse 4, we see it, he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus could have chosen, as some of the Jewish leadership did, to travel across the Jordan River and travel north on the other side of the Jordan to avoid passing through Samaria. Again, some of the Jewish leaders preferred to do that. But Jesus chooses to travel right up through the heart of the country. And for those of you trying to kind of picture how all these events unfold at home, 
Uh, for those of you children who are still getting situated on what the land of Israel looks like, I have a little map here. Can you see it? Might be easier if you look at the one on that screen. And especially if you're some of you kids there that have good eyesight, you can read out some of the names to your parents if you need to. It's a bit of an eye test. But I want us to understand a little bit briefly about the regions of Israel because we're going to be moving back and forth across so many of them. And it's good if in our minds we can just basically picture how this country is laid out. Israel is a tall, skinny country, and it's oriented north to south. And it has a few major regions that we are going to see show up over and over. In the south, the bottom of that kind of teal greenish area is Judea or Judea. And it's where you're going to see the center of Jewish life and leadership. That's where you have Jerusalem. That's also where you have Bethlehem. And so that's going to be a very important region, heavily influenced by the Jewish leadership. In the far north, where you kind of have that orangish area, you've got the region of Galilee. They're sort of on the west side of the, of the Sea of Galilee. And that region, it was a lush land. It was a very fertile area. But it was also fairly removed from Jerusalem. And so it was a great place to do ministry, but also to have some distance with all of the politics and all of the goings-on down in Jerusalem. And in between Judea and Galilee is the region of Samaria, where the Samaritans live. And that's who we're going to meet today. It was a region that was despised by the Jews as a place where people lived who didn't belong here. And we're going to look at how Jesus helps us to think about people that our culture or our world says don't belong here in a little bit. So you have Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, this region of Samaria in the middle. And then the other area that occasionally shows up is the Decapolis, kind of that pinkish area, which was a city, a group of cities largely populated by Gentiles, people that were not Jews. And that came a little bit into the area of Galilee and then stretched over across onto the other side of the Jordan. And so in the north, you had a lot more mixing of Samaritans and Galileans and Gentiles, and you'll see Jesus having a lot of interactions with those different groups up there. But then when you drop down south into Judea, you're in Jew country, and that's where they tended to keep those influences out. So Jesus's ministry is going to go back and forth across these regions, and you can try to keep that in mind as we work through um, not just our text this morning, but in the weeks ahead. So there's your geography lesson for the day. Uh, those of you that are students, you can check that off. Uh, turn that in for one of your assignments this week. I want to also then briefly talk a little bit about history because Jesus, as he comes into Samaria, is coming into an area with a long past. And we know probably if you've been around the church for any length of time that the Jews and the Samaritans don't really get along, but sometimes it's forgotten why they don't get along. And it has to do with a long history of conflict between the people of God in the south and this region of Samaria. If you recall, after the time of the judges, you know, the, we had the Exodus, they come into the promised land, they live under judges for a while, but then they decide, we want a king, and so they decide to become a kingdom with a king, and the great nation of Israel survives for exactly three kings, all as a united kingdom. Saul, for just a little while, until he was deposed by God, then David, then his son Solomon, and then the nation split in half. Two tribes, Judea, or excuse me, Judah and Benjamin, stayed together in the south around the temple, around Jerusalem, and stayed true to worshiping God for the most part. Although if you read your Old Testament, you'll discover that was sometimes a challenge. But the ten tribes from the north say, we're done with all of this. We're out of here. We're starting our own nation. And so they start their own nation, and it becomes known as Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And so God's people are now split into two groups. One group still worshiping at the temple, another group in the north. And that group in the north under a very wicked king named Omri, and you may not know his name very well, but you've probably heard of his son, a fine lad called Ahab. A wicked king named Omri decides to move the capital city to Samaria. And so Samaria, and then the region around it, which became also known as Samaria, represents the center of rebellion when God's people split in the north, away from the temple and away from true worship of God. 
So that was bad enough, but it got worse. As a judgment of God on those northern tribes, the Assyrians would come in later and conquer those northern tribes and carry them off and scatter them around the nations and left behind only those they deemed too insignificant to worry about. People that they said, you have no wealth, no ambition, you're not going to cause any political problems from us, you're just not worth moving. And those people then began to intermarry with folks from other surrounding nations that the Assyrians brought in and transplanted into the area in place of the Israelites they had moved out. You can read about all of this in 2 Kings chapter 17. The Assyrians loved doing this. They'd conquer a place, and then basically they'd throw all the nations in a blender and then spread them all around so that you would lose that strong ethnic identity that the peoples had had before. If you want to read 2 Kings 17, you'll also notice there are lions involved in this particular story, and that makes for an interesting read. So maybe you can do that this afternoon is read 2 Kings 17 and find out how lions are involved in the the religious practices of Samaria. But the southern tribes who themselves were carried off into captivity in Babylon not too long after this, they come back after 70 years, and what they find is to their north are the remnant of those people that had rebelled against God and split the nation, intermarried and mixed with the Gentiles, worshiping in a way contrary to what God had revealed. And so for them, it was just the most repulsive and disgusting example of political rebellion, religious rebellion, social rebellion. These were half-breeds not to be tolerated. That's where this animosity comes from. And so they completely exclude the Samaritans from the worship and the life of the southern tribes when they return to the promised land. And in response then, the Samaritans say, fine, you want nothing to do with us? We'll build our own temple. And so they built their own temple. And then in response to that, the southern tribes went in and smashed their temple. There is a lot of bad blood between these people that goes back centuries. And that's why it is interesting to see this take place here when Jesus goes to this little town of Sychar that is located at such an interesting place to have such an interesting conversation with this unexpected person. The city of Sychar is nestled in the perfect place to talk about worship, to talk about God, to talk about the Messiah. Because it is right in the shadow of the mountain where that false temple had been built and destroyed. And those mountains as well were the place where God had chosen through Moses to have, as the Israelites entered the promised land for the very first time, the blessings and the curses of his law read out. You can actually see a couple pictures here that will come up on the screen of the old city of Sychar. Now, this isn't the biblical city, but it was a picture taken before they had color cameras um, of what an old village in the location of Sychar looks like, nestled right here at the bottom of Mount Gerizim, where that false temple was built, where those blessings were read. And then if you take a picture of the same town from the other direction, you will see that it also sits at the base, of the next picture here, of Mount Ebal. That's that hill in the background there, where all of the curses of the law were read when they came into the promised land. This is also the place that Jacob had given to his son Joseph when he was blessing the sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, And so it was a place that was rich in history with the patriarchs. It was where Jacob, when he had been wandering through Canaan, had dug a well and found a special well that actually had a spring feeding into it. And so the whole city was surviving basically off of this amazing source of water, a well fed by a spring. And so it's rich in history, it's rich in significance, it's politically loaded, it's religiously loaded. And Jesus stops by for a pit stop on his journey north. If you've ever been on a long trip uh, in the car, perhaps, and you're like, man, I'm getting hungry. Let's just pull over at the next exit. And you end up in some small random town. That's kind of what's happening here. Except with God, there is nothing random. And so in verse 6, we find Jesus coming into this town It's in the heat of the midday, around the sixth hour. That'd be around noon, about six hours since sunrise. 
and he stops for a rest at Jacob's well. And as I mentioned, this is a unique well because it's not just a regular well, it's a well fed by a spring. And so in verse 6, in the Greek, it actually is the word for spring. And then later when the Samaritan woman comes, she's going to describe it as a well or a cistern. It's a dugout place to store water. So the question is, well, which is it? Is it a spring or is it a well? And the answer is, it's both. Well, why is John using these different words? Well, it's because the difference between a well and a spring is actually going to be central to the lesson Jesus is about to teach to this woman. And now the stage is set. Following the will of his father, Jesus has arrived in this random town at a random hour to rest at a random well. And yet a remarkable divine appointment is about to take place. And I want to stop briefly to note a couple quick lessons before we dive into this amazing conversation. And the first is simply this. Jesus had long days. Jesus had long days. He got tired. He got hot. He got thirsty. He got hungry. He stopped to take breaks. Human weakness is not a sin. Human weakness is not a sin. And I think we can take encouragement from the humanity of Jesus. It's okay sometimes to say, I'm really tired. It's okay sometimes to say, I need to sit down for a moment. But I also want us to notice in his weakness, in his tiredness, how our Savior lives. Because how easy is it for us to use human weakness as an excuse for actual sin, for having bad attitudes, for indulging ourselves. Maybe some of you kids out there this morning can think back even over the last week. What's the hardest thing that, that you had to do this week or that you went through this week? Maybe you were really bored or maybe you're really tired or maybe your sister was really getting on your nerves. How did you respond? It's not sinful to say this was a hard day. This has been a long day. But let us look to our Savior as an example for how to always use every opportunity to give God glory, even on long days. And secondly, I think we see a good reminder here, as Christians, we don't want to just do ministry. We want to be ministers. Often the most important gospel work we will do in life will come along when we are in the mundane pockets of time that litter the ordinary parts of our life. Having a God-centered mind is always a better preparation than having some slick gospel evangelism strategy. If you've memorized all the outlines for your gospel presentation, but your heart is not ready all throughout the day to honor God and to share his good news with people out of a love for God and a love for people, all the cool outlines and illustrations and clever comebacks in the world will be of little use. Again, for you kids out there this morning, what are some ways that you, as you wake up each day, can get your hearts ready right in the morning, right away when you get up to have a day serving God, no matter what happens? Because whether we're traveling a hot road in the middle of the day like Jesus, or we're answering emails during a stay-at-home order, or we're playing with our brothers and sisters, we need to have our hearts at the ready at all times. And Jesus is obviously the perfect example of how this works. And he is in position. And now we need to meet our other main character in this story. And look, here she comes now. Look at verses 7 through 9. We not only have a thirsty Savior, we also have a thirsty Samaritan arriving on the scene in verses 7 through 9. Look with me at the first two verses there, 7 and 8. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. What a startling question for this lady. Verse 7, a woman of Samaria is coming. There's a couple things remarkable about this. First is that she is alone. In the ancient world, women did not go to do these chores alone. They didn't go because of social propriety. They didn't go because of social safety. They also largely didn't go alone because... Like, this was the time you got to go hang out with your friends. This is when you could talk and converse. You couldn't be, you know, just at home working on stuff and have, you know, the phone propped up on one ear while you're cooking and talk to your best friend. If you wanted to see the other women in the village, you found those times to cross paths when you went to the water, when you went to go do the laundry, things like this. 
And so it's very unusual to see a woman traveling alone. It's also very unusual to see her coming for water at this time of the day. If you're going to go get water and you're going to be lugging big water jugs and hauling up water from a well that even today is 100 feet deep and may have been even deeper in ancient times, you don't do that at noon. That's hot. That is hot, miserable work to be lugging water jugs in the middle of the day. And so you would do that either early in the morning or late in the evening. And so already we've got some indications that this lady is occupying a complicated place in the social structure of the day. This is a lady who does not probably like to answer a lot of direct questions about how her life is going. She's alone at an unusual time, coming to the well, and she probably thinks a little bit, oh bother, when she sees some random dude sitting where she would hope to be alone. But the only thing in this culture stranger than a woman coming alone to this well in the heat of the day is Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, who not only acknowledges her presence, but actually talks to her and asks for a drink. Jewish men often avoided conversing with women kind of in general outside of their immediate families. Jewish religious men avoided talking to Samaritans in general whenever they could. If Jesus had asked this question after she had drawn water, rather than as she was coming to draw water, she probably would have just dropped her water pot. Verse 8, the reason this conversation is happening the way it is, we are told, is because the disciples had gone off to buy food, which meant that Jesus, which is somewhat rare for his life, is actually there alone with this woman who is coming alone. And so they are actually going to have a private conversation. If the woman had known that Jesus' disciples were off getting food, she might have been a little less on guard because just going to Samaria to buy food was already a bit of a cultural break. Many Jews had self-imposed restrictions on consuming any food handled by Samaritan hands. They believed it defiled them. So the fact that his disciples were going to get food indicates that Jesus had already begun to teach his disciples to operate by a different set of social norms than regular Jews. They are charting a different course in their culture. But the Samaritan woman didn't know this. And even if she had, it still would have been a shocking thing to be addressed by Jesus. And so in verse 9, she answers in surprise. An understandable surprise. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink? Since I'm a Samaritan woman. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's almost like she's saying, do you see what's happening here? Like, this is weird. What are you doing? It had been a growing idea for some time, and it was actually soon about to be put into Jewish law, that all Samaritan women were ceremonial unclean from their birth to their death. And therefore, you needed to stay away from them, or you would become ceremonially defiled. So even in the instance where you might talk to one, you wouldn't want to have any contact you wouldn't say, get me a drink, please. That kind of interaction would just be unthinkable. The Samaritan woman also knows that this is the popular opinion. She knows this is extremely unusual. And so she's asking essentially if he has somehow forgotten who he is and who she is. And John adds a note here, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, which may be even better rendered perhaps as D.A. Carson notes, for Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. They don't sit down and have supper. They don't exchange goods and services. They don't share drinking utensils. And so we got a bit of a standoff. Jesus and the woman staring at each other across a vast cultural and vast social divide. The difference between the two of them is that Jesus does know exactly with whom he is speaking, and she has no idea. And that problem is about to be dealt with but again, a couple quick lessons before we continue. First, like Jesus, I think we need to learn to see souls, not identities. See souls, not labels. This world, despite all of its talk about tolerance and diversity, man, it loves its labels. 
people are Republican or Democrat, they are oppressors or oppressed, they are gay or straight, they are Hispanic or white or black. And these are all words that can be used as descriptions of someone, but our culture seems to love to use them as definitions of someone. They are words that define and divide us. And the gospel teaches us to see souls. It does not eliminate distinctions between people. This woman was still a woman. She was still a Samaritan. But it subordinates all those distinctions to the more important issue of how being created in the image of God, a person being created in the image of God, can live in peace with God, their creator. We need to be careful about this in our evangelical worlds. Defending American culture at the expense of the gospel is sinful. Pushing for cultural diversity at the expense of the gospel is sinful. Culture and social norms are where our moral convictions become most practical at the daily level, and that's why they are always going to be battlegrounds and important ones. Make no mistake, racism, sinful prejudice are never primarily about the color of someone's skin. The lines that divide us are culture and values. And those culture and values may tend to be grouped by the colors of our skin, but it is those convicting idols, conflicting idols, it is those competing preferences that is where our heart comes into conflict. Our hearts come into conflict, excuse me. You want to see what this looks like? Just look at some minority group gathering where somebody shows up with the right color skin, but the wrong ideas. They are as ostracized as anybody else. It's because we battle along the lines of our idols and our preferences and our cultural values. We need to align our sensitivities to God's sensitivities. Just as a question, which offends us more? that some cultures are casual about premarital sex or that some cultures are casual about putting dogs on the dinner table? Which cultural norm do you think God would abolish first? Like Jesus, we need to be able to see behind in the people around us what is often truly a train wreck of emotions and sins and habitual animosities and pride. And behind all that, we need to see in people that for which Christ died. Unlike Jesus, we need to remember we are all the woman at the well. We are all train wrecks too. We all need a Savior to stop by our town and call out to us. Secondly, small connections matter. Small connections matter. Notice that Jesus didn't open with, hey, I'm the Messiah. I've got four reasons you need to repent and believe in me. He asked for a drink. He connected in a simple, sincere way with this woman. I'm thirsty. You've been to this well. You know how it works. Can I have a drink? I think our culture is increasingly skeptical of big evangelical projects to reach this or that group of people. I believe we would be a lot more effective for Christ if we were simply known for being people who engage sincerely and simply with anyone God puts in our path. And that might actually get people wondering what's up with us, like this Samaritan woman did. For you kids this morning, here's one of the best ways you can start to learn to live this way while you're young. Make a habit of loving people that are different than you in little ways. If you're at church... When you get to be at church again and you see a little kid much younger than you, you can go out of your way to say, good morning, what's your name? Learn their name. It's good to see you this morning. I'm glad you're here. You see somebody who's much older than you. Say, hi, I'm so-and-so. Shake their hand, look them in the eyes and say, I'm glad you're here today. Just those little ways of contacting people and showing love and care teaches us to see people as souls. For some of you, I know that's hard. You want to run around and hide behind mommy and daddy because it just feels strange to talk to people you don't know. 
But we need to learn to love people and to see them the way God sees them. You can also do that with people your age. When you're in your classes at school or at Sunday school, or when you're around your friends and you're playing and you see that person who tends to be by themselves and who's at the edge and nobody's really talking or playing with them, are you the one that wants to run over and say, hi, my name's so-and-so. Can I play with you? Do you want to be my friend? Or maybe there's a student in your class who seems to have a hard time, have a hard time remembering the right answers to the questions. They seem discouraged and feel like they're always getting things wrong. Are you the first one to encourage them, to be excited for them when things go well, to celebrate their successes? These are the habits that help us learn to see people as Jesus sees them. We never know how Jesus might use us in someone's life. For the woman at the well, she was about to have a cultural confrontation that would turn into a spiritual transformation. So here's the secret. Jesus is thirsty, and they both know it. But the woman is also thirsty, just not for water. And right now, Jesus is the only one who knows what the soul of this woman really needs. And so I want us to see how Jesus helps her realize what her need truly is. As we look at verses 10 through 14, we've got a thirsty Savior and a thirsty Samaritan, and now finally, a drink is offered in verses 10 through 14. Look with me first at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus answers her startled question of, wait, whoa, what are you doing? I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jew. Why are you talking to me? He answers her startled question with an equally surprising response. He tells her, you know what? You shouldn't be surprised and all flustered. You should be asking me for me to give you water. If you actually knew two things, the gift of God and who you're talking to. The gift of God here is most likely eternal life, which Jesus is about to describe. But in any case, what do we call, and if some of you kids at home know, shout it out, if, what do we call gifts of God that we don't deserve? If you said grace, that's the right answer. It's exactly it. Because this is ultimately the bridge that spans our earthly differences. It must have seemed strange to the woman to have Jesus begin answering her question by talking about divine gifts, but it is in fact the only answer that works. Why is Jesus, a Jewish man, talking to this person, a Samaritan woman? It's because he understands the grace of God in a way that she as yet does not. The gift of God, though, is not the only thing she doesn't know. She also doesn't realize who she is talking to. Sneaking off in the heat of the day to get water without having to talk to anyone, this woman has just encountered God in the flesh, the Messiah. If she had known what was happening, she would have been drawing up a bucket of water for Jesus as fast as she could and asking him for water of an entirely different sort, living water. But since she doesn't know these things yet, her response is still full of bewilderment there in verses 11 to 12, which say, she said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get all that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us his well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And I really wish we could have had this videotaped because I'd love to see the body language and the tone throughout this whole thing. It is so hard to figure out like what's just kind of incredulous, what is interested, what is sarcastic. I, I, I would have just love to know what the tone is here. But it's clear that she seems to be thinking, I think this guy's been sitting in the hot sun too long. As I mentioned earlier, this well is probably at least 100 feet deep at this time. There were no other good sources of water anywhere nearby. She could tell he hadn't drawn up any water himself. So where's all this nice living water coming from? The idea of living water was a word that was associated with running water, springs, things that weren't just stored in a well or a cistern, but things that were gushing forth. And so it's like Jesus sitting there by this well. It's 100 feet deep. And he's like, hey, can you get me a drink? And she's like, what are you doing? And he's like, well, if you knew what was going on here, 
You'd ask me, and I'd give you, and what she hears is spring water gushing forth right on the surface. And she's like, you don't even have a bucket. I know you didn't get it out of here. Look around. You saw the pictures of the area. There's no water gushing anywhere near here. What are you talking about? Do you somehow think you're greater than Jacob, the great patriarch who came out here and dug this massive well all the way down until he found water? It's almost comical because as honestly as we can appreciate her question and her bewilderment, we and John, as he writes us, we know the answer is yes, he is greater than Jacob. That's the point. And so you almost wonder if Jesus smiles a little bit to himself as he answers her in verses 13 to 14 and says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is helping this woman see that the water he's talking about is not simply another source of water, but it's another kind of water. He points out the obvious. Drink as much water from this well as you want today. Tomorrow, you're still going to be thirsty for more. And given the fact that for women in this time, this was one of their daily chores, lugging heavy water pots, they would have especially gotten this obvious point. Yeah, you don't get to do this job and be done. You have to do it over and over and over because we keep getting thirsty. In verse 14, in contrast to this, then Jesus tells the woman, I am able to give you a drink that will turn inside you into a spring, into a fountain that will be leaping up to eternal life. This is something different indeed. And I think it's a, as our first lesson for this section, it helps us to understand rightly what it is that God is doing in us. That God's grace is not a fruit, it's a seed. It's not a life-giving consumable. It is a life-producing fountain. Sometimes I think we treat God's grace like it's something we just need to come and snack on over and over whenever we get sort of thirsty or we get hungry. Yeah, I'm supposed to go to church on Sunday so I can kind of nibble on my little grace, my grace nugget for the week. I'll go to life groups. I can get my little grace drink for the week. And we treat all these different aspects of the Christian life like we would treat going to some meal. But God's grace is something that he gives us at the moment of salvation and it continues to work within us and conforming us to the image of his son. It is a well, it is a fountain, it is a spring constantly producing life within us and all these things that we get to enjoy in Christian fellowship, being in the word and being in prayer and coming together and partaking of communion and singing and studying and doing our life groups together. All of these things are ways in which the water of God's grace gushes out into every area of our life and brings it into full flower and bloom. But God's grace is not a snack. It's a fountain in our soul. And Jesus is helping this woman see your view of religion is wrong. You need life in your soul. And for you kids this morning, maybe you're having trouble with this, reading your Bible or praying or going to church. Maybe it seems boring or hard. And maybe that's because you don't think of it like splashing in living water, but instead you're thinking of those things as just rules that you have to do so you can be a good person. And I want to maybe challenge you this week when you come to read your Bible, your family reads your Bible, reads their Bible together, or, or you're studying the things about God and praying to Him, I want you to begin by saying, God, give me living water in my soul so that when I come to study Your Word, when I come to think about You, as David would say, I want to behold wonderful things. Secondly, we need to learn Go to the source. Don't hoard the runoff. Go to the source. Don't hoard the runoff. Jesus is saying, this well, this cistern, it can hold water, but it's a temporary satisfaction. What you need is a source 
of living water within you that cannot run dry. And in doing this, he is echoing the language of the prophet Jeremiah, who gave to people God's judgment on their false hearts. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, where it says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God was saying, I'm the source of life. In our relationship, you have a fountain of living waters that can never run dry. And yet you're somehow hoping to survive by cutting yourself off from the fountain and trying to find what looks like rivulets of rivers running in the desert and digging little clay collection tanks and trying to gather all of that dusty, sludgy runoff and saying, ha, there's my security, there's my sustenance, that'll take care of me. And yet you keep coming out each day and taking the top off and looking inside and realizing, as so often happened to cisterns in the ancient world, they had cracked and all the water had dissipated into the sand and you were left with nothing. That is how we often operate We are so quick to try to gather for ourselves stores of security and happiness. We we look at the blessings of God instead of being thankful for the giver, the blessings. We're trying to hoard our bank accounts and saying, aha, my security. We look at a God who fills the world with delights and instead of delighting in God, we say, ah, look at my collection of entertainment and distractions, my happiness. We look at a God who is worth all things. And instead, we try to feed our own sense of self-worth. And we keep finding our cisterns dry when we need only go to the source of living waters and find there an unending supply of what our souls were designed to crave. Jesus has offered this woman what she desperately needs, and yet still she can't see it. And so Jesus is now going to put his finger right on the central affliction of her soul so she can finally see what she's been missing. He's offered the drink, and now in verses 15 through 19, he is going to identify the thirst of this Samaritan woman for her. And so in 15 to 19, we see a thirst identified Look with me first at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And again, I wish I could tell what tone she said this with. Is she piling on the sarcasm thinking she's talking to a crazy man? Oh, well, since you're some magic dude who's got magic water, it does get tiring coming out here every day. You might as well give me your magic beans. Or maybe there's a bit of a why that would sure be nice if it was true, tone to her voice. Fetching water is hard work. Fetching water alone without anyone to help you draw in the heat of the day, now that was hard and miserable work. She wants to have this annoying physical need met, but Jesus is moving ever more explicitly towards addressing her spiritual need, and he is now ready to bring the conversation to its turning point. And in verses 16 to 18, see how Jesus opens her eyes. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. That question must have rocked this woman. It's abrupt. For her, it probably seemed to be out of the blue. And what a painful web of memories that must have stirred up. Jesus is pressing her to see her real lack, her real thirst. It's not for water. What wearies her is not daily trips to the well, but the daily travail of being a sinful, broken person in a sinful, broken world. In verse 17, the first part there, imagine the woman almost just looking down at the ground as she responds, I have no husband. And she must have desperately hoped Jesus would be content with that answer. 
and not probe further. Just the word husband dragged up before her eyes the bankruptcy of her heart. And she certainly didn't want this Jewish man in on the drama of her life. But that is exactly what she needs. She needs a savior and she needs a savior precisely at the point where her life is the most ugly and the most painful. And so do we. We need a savior where it's ugly. And Jesus, perhaps in an act of compassion, doesn't press her further, but rather reveals what he already knows and what she is trying to hide. So in the second half of verse 17 through 18, notice instead of rebuking her, Jesus actually encourages the woman on her technically truthful but incomplete answer. And then he fills in the blanks. This woman's life has been defined by broken relationships with men. There are only two ways to go through five husbands, death and or divorce. And in either case, after so many marriages, she would be heartbroken, likely jaded, almost certainly a social pariah. In a small town with tight family networks, she was the widowed or divorced remnant of at least five family groups. She couldn't go anywhere or do anything without being around people who brought up hard, painful memories. And her current attempt at comfort was to run to the arms of yet another man, who in this case was not her husband. And in both Jewish and Samaritan circles, this was clearly understood to be sinful. It'd be hard to really understand what it was like for this woman, especially in the cultural times in which she lived, to deal with the guilt and the pain and the shock and the embarrassment that must have washed over her in that moment when Jesus puts his finger right on the most sensitive part of her soul. But in that moment, she finally saw clearly what the real craving of her heart was. Finally pulled to the foreground where her pain, where her suffering, where her longing really existed. And that's why finally here, the conversation leaves the water behind and moves into the realm of worship where Jesus knew it needed to be from the beginning. And so in verse 19, in the understatement of the ear category, the woman simply says, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. And it may even be better rendered, I perceive you are the prophet. Perhaps beginning to actually have an inkling that somebody greater than Jacob was talking to her, sitting there at Jacob's well. And we're going to have to wait till next week to see where the conversation continues and the results of it. And it's going to be amazing, so you don't want to miss next week. But I want to leave us with a couple really important lessons from this first half of the conversation. The first is this. The prosperity gospel is a fraud. The prosperity gospel is a fraud. False teachers have always tried to sell people who think they are thirsty for physical water some form of Jesus-branded bottled water. This is, this is the way of the massive industry of the prosperity gospel goes forward. You think your problem is a physical need? We have the Jesus solution to all your physical desires. And yes, it is true that we serve the God that can make us wealthy as King Solomon if he so chooses. But we also serve the God who is enough for Job in the midst of all his sufferings. And seeing charlatans peddling lies in the name of Jesus during this current global crisis is just grievous. In a world so quick to think that what it needs most is a cure for COVID-19 and not a cure for sin, it serves the enemy so well to keep marketing the gospel as something designed to satisfy our fleshly cravings. A full belly is an easy distraction from an empty heart. And an empty belly, when you've been falsely promised comfort in this life through physical means, is an easy motivation to harden you against and despise God. 
The nature of the true gospel is here. Jesus helps this woman to see he has come to give her what she truly needs, not a spring of water to make her chores easier, but eternal life in her soul by which she may find joy even if her chores get harder. Secondly, grace sees everything and is still gracious. Grace sees everything and is still gracious. There's no point trying to come to Jesus hoping he won't actually see what's really going on in your heart. And the good news is he does see exactly what's going on in your heart and he offers his living water anyway. The ugly sin we've committed, the excruciating pain that we've been through, the failures that we recoil from, the lies and the excuses and the deceptions that we hide behind, he already knows of all of it. He always did. And yet he came and died anyway. The father will never regret sending the son. And the son will never regret dying for sinners. And so we can come to the one who knows the unrest of our soul with perfect honesty. And there we find not judgment and condemnation, but in the grace of God, because of the work of Christ, we find living water. And so let God's grace be the fountain that fills up where we are empty and washes our sins away. And a grace gracious fountain that flows over our trials, not always in this life to remove them, but to comfort and strengthen us to endure them. And having experienced this kind of grace, O Christian, let us show it to others. For you kids, if your sibling had something really bad or really hard, if they needed to tell someone, or if you had a friend who had something really bad or really hard going on in their life, they need to tell someone, would they feel comfortable talking to you about it? Because they know you love them and will speak the truth to them with kindness and grace. Or would they be a friend that, afraid that you would stop being their friend or would make fun of them or would abandon them? And for us adults as well, we have such a nuanced web of social norms that we learn to use to firewall off the parts of our lives that we don't like. And we can be so good at hiding addictions and indulgences and pain and fear and anger and weakness. And maybe today is the day that you pick up a phone and call someone in our church that you know loves Jesus and speaks the truth in grace and say, hey, I need some grace at work in my life. Would you help walk this road with me? Here's what's really going on in my heart. And maybe some of our life groups, even while meeting virtually, can step out courageously with honesty this week. Saving grace only comes through Jesus Christ. But we who are called by his name have the privilege to minister that grace to each other and to a hurting world every day. So let's do it. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your son, for the incredible grace he shows to undeserving people. And undeserving is what we all are. And we will never be deserving. We will always be trophies of your power, objects of your grace. All that is beautiful in us is but you reflected through the work you have done. And so we pray, Lord, that we would come to you with the humility and the gratitude of those forgiven. We ask, Lord, that you would help us not to be so easily distracted by the desires of our flesh that we would miss the cravings of our soul, that we would not be contented with lesser things in this world but that we would pursue after you and find in you the real satisfaction that we were designed for. We pray, Lord, for our neighbors, for our friends, 
for those around us that we love dearly and yet who have not come to know you, would you be so kind and gracious as to stop by their town, as it were, and to call out to them and to help them to see their thirst for you? And would you grant them the living waters that you still provide freely and without cost? And if you would choose to do that through us and through our testimony, what an honor that would be to participate with you in your great work. Make us faithful, Lord. Make us gracious, whether gathered or scattered, so that we might truly live out what we believe in our hearts, that it's all about Christ and it's all about his glory. And this we pray in his name. Amen.